0: everyone, and welcome back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert Podcast. I'm your host, James Huang, and today we've got a deep dive episode talking about a new development in aerodynamic design in the bicycle world. The two tools most commonly used by aerodynamicists and engineers in the cycling industry today are computational fluid dynamic software packages and physical wind tunnels. Usually, CFD is used heavily during the design and concept phase, while physical wind tunnels are saved kind of more for later stages to validate what the computer is telling you. Both of those tools have something in common. They're based on having laminar airflow, meaning the incoming air approaches in kind of neat and parallel paths, so you can get precise and consistent data that engineers can then use to refine and modify those products – design, test, modify, repeat. However, while having the incoming air be arranged in neat parallel lines is nice for repeatability, none of us actually ride in perfect conditions like that. So what would happen if you instead wanted to use the more turbulent air we all ride in in the real world to design things like aero wheels? Would it change anything or would it not really matter? That's what the folks at Reserve Wheels asked themselves and the approach their engineers used in designing the company's new 5265 wheelset. So what sort of attributes do these wheels perhaps have that they might not otherwise have had Reserve used the usual laminar flow models in designing these? And does that make them any better? What else might we learn from using turbulent flow? And how does a three-wheeled scooter plan to all this? Well, to find answers to all these questions and then some, I dialed up the folks at Reserve Wheels to pick their brains on all this stuff, and here's what they had to say. All right. Uh, Scotty, Nick, thanks so much for being on the show today. I know that you two are in Quite uh, disparate time zones at the moment, and Scotty, you just got off of a very long plane flight. Um, before we really dive into things, I would like for each of you, if you don't mind, to just kind of just state your name and your title, sort of what you do, uh, and uh, just so that listeners can have an idea of who they're actually listening to as we get into this. So, Scotty, maybe we'll start with you.
1: Okay. Hi, James. Um, hello again. Uh, it's Scott. Uh, Scott Roy from Cervelo, uh engineering manager at Beam of the Company, uh, about six years, um, previous experience in aerospace. A lot of what I do now is, um, working with, uh, getting the product from initial concept stage with our designers and engineers, um, through manufacturing, uh, at our factories all the way through to, um, education, uh, and dealer training. Um, and then the second part of my job is hence this trip. I'm in Copenhagen at the moment. So I'm the technical advisor for Yumbo Bisma. So, um, When we talk about feedback loops with the team on our products, it usually goes through myself and and another colleague, uh, Richard Kieskamp, who's local to Europe.
2: That's a a lot of hats, Scott. It's just one big sombrero. (laughs) Okay. All right. And Nick? All right. Uh, Thanks for having us, James. Uh, Nick McRae. I'm the uh, composite engineer for Reserve Wheels and uh, Santa Cruz Bikes at the same time. I guess R&D manager is my real title, uh, whatever that means. Um, A few hats uh, here as well. So I I run the test lab in Santa Cruz and the composite manufacturing uh, prototyping facility in Santa Cruz for reserve wheels as well. And my main job is to bring uh, designs into mass production um, at our manufacturing uh, partner facilities, usually in Asia. Uh, So I do a lot of testing, a lot of um, approving test reports and things of that
0: nature. Gotcha. So, not quite as many hats, but it's maybe still just as big. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I guess. Nick and
1: I have spent many nights, many nights in Asia at factories together.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. All right. First things first, uh, we're here to talk about some new wheels. Um, And Reserve has obviously been in the wheel game for quite a long time at this point, primarily in the mountain bike space. Uh, And then uh, almost two years ago, exactly now, Reserve got into the road wheel game with three models that, well, I mean, let's kind of say they didn't really seem to move the needle a whole lot at the time. Um, so back That's then, fair. I kind of speculated that they seemed to be kind of like an OEM play. Um, was I maybe right on that? Um, I think it was mostly <laughs> right. I think it was mostly
2: right. Um, there's yeah. also an element of, um, you know, dipping your your toes in the water for the first time and learning about the business. And I think... Uh, being conservative on a first product line uh, when you get into a new market segment is um, a good a good thing. So you can uh, learn a lot, see um, what are the important features or parameters in your design, um, structure your supply chain in a good way with a design that is uh, not pushing the needle too far. Um, but and definitely, I think uh, Reserve had a, a the intention of partnering up with Cervello on a on on the long run um and so we had to start somewhere and uh just building that business together uh, has been fantastic for both companies but um yes to your original question i think the first uh the, the original product line was uh um uh, not exactly where we wanted to be in the long run um and what we're going to be talking about today is is our our response to um that original product line not being exactly what we wanted it to be?
0: Well, uh, the reason why I asked that question is not necessarily to put you on the spot, but uh, I mean, it was very intentional in the sense that those wheels, while they may not have necessarily stood out in some ways, I guess what's also interesting about those wheels is the fact that it kind of highlights the idea that in a lot of ways, aerodynamic shaping of road wheels has been seemingly somewhat stagnant for the last few years, it seems like we've kind of hit this sort of nadir in in aerodynamic development, and even companies like you know Zip, for example, you know they've kind of moved on a little bit from their like arrow, arrow, arrow story onto kind of a more holistic approach, like ride quality and weight and stuff like that. And and other other companies have kind of kind of followed suit. But with these new wheels that that Reserve is bringing out, I mean, these seem quite different uh, in the sense of how they came to be and and the story behind them. Um so what exactly is the story here as far as how they came to be and why these might be a little bit different from what we have seen otherwise from any company really
2: Good yeah fair question um I think we 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 took a whole different approach um we noticed uh, as a company that uh Roadwheel Aerodynamics had um indeed stagnated a bit for for a few years and one of the elements behind that stagnation was the design method, and the methodolo- methodology to test them um, in the wind tunnel, as an example, a lot of companies for simplicity and uh, correlation with CFD tools that uh, already exist um, have been testing in laminar flow for many, many years, basically f- since the inception of aerodynamics in and in, in road cycling. And we decided to actually measure conditions in the real world to see how far off from laminar flow reality was uh realized it was pretty far out there um the the world is turbulent as most people have experienced it when you 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 put your hand outside the window of your car it's, it doesn't just like flow constantly at a nice even speed like it you get pushed around a lot um, same thing on your bike same thing as you get out of a, a Uh, forested area on your bike you take a turn and then you get into an open field and you get pushed around a lot the air is turbulent and so we set out to measure what that turbulence would be and replicating that in the wind tunnel um, in a way for us to test wheels in real world conditions so i think that premise um really changed the the scope of the of design for us um and as the new product line uh, shows uh, yields very different results. So mixed profile wheels, um, different shaping of the profiles, different widths. Um, uh, We see this as a significant step forward in cycling aerodynamics. And uh, we were fortunate enough to have the history and expertise of Cervelo um, to partner with, to make sure we were taking those steps in, in, at the right pace and uh, also avoiding some pitfalls um, since uh, reserve was not uh, really in the world market as is that much um, before we started working on this.
1: To elaborate a little bit on that, James, um, I think that uh, it, th- there's nothing per se wrong necessarily with, with the approach um, in testing in laminar flow. Um, what we, what uh, not just us what the industry standard is across any aerodynamic study is, is repeatability um, stability and repeatability in testing and um, what is a good way to be stable and repeatable is testing in a laminar condition um, what that means uh, in an elevator pitch is that if we make a tiny adjustment on the frame if we change a base bar shape or if we change a sheet say the seat stay shape um, the overall magnitude of that change is so small for the, for the broad scheme of the bike. So if we introduce any other variability in that, that gets lost in that noise, right? So we test in a laminar condition to iterate in a more controlled manner. Um, but what we, we know and what everybody knows is nothing. It's very few things in this world that are laminar flow. Um, everything is turbulent, um, from, from the way water flows, generally speaking, to the way air moves, to, to how the galaxies interact with each other, even at a very high level, everything is in a turbulent, unstable nature. Um, and what we're trying to do is is understand that and how that can influence our design um, in this instance for reserve. And then later on and follow the data into how we can implement that into bikes um, and, and what that benefit can be for the consumer and the protein for us.
0: Um, I guess just to back up just a hair, just talking about laminar versus turbulent flow, um, obviously this is a podcast, so anyone listening to this can't really look at anything. Um, But uh, when we're talking about laminar flow, we're talking about essentially when you look at various articles or marketing pitches or product websites and whatever, it's like the nice, clean, straight lines that you see in in these like CFD simulations or graphs and that sort of thing, or not graphs, uh, in the CFD simulations. Whereas with turbulent flow, those lines would almost kind of be like little squiggles, right?
1: Uh, sort of. I, I think that the easier way to, to define it is there's there's two instances of turbulence, right? There's, there's post Turbulence and pre-turbulence, what we're, what we're trying to do. Is, so a laminar flow can interact with a frame or a rider and become turbulent. So that's fine. That's already something that we already do in simulation and that we can test in the tunnel, what we're doing and what we're trying to understand is initial flow being of a turbulent nature and an unstable nature. Um, and that's more accurate to real world conditions. So, um, a good visual for, for people, I guess, would, if you look at a, if you have a, a tap that doesn't have a diffuser on it and you get that glass bead of water that comes down, that almost looks like it's not moving. That's perfectly laminar flow. Um, The optical view of that is that there's no movement, doesn't look like there's any movement because it's, it's perfectly laminar. If you put a diffuser in that, like that little mesh that then becomes turbulent flow and if you put your finger under each one of those, there's a significant difference in what that feels like on the hand, right? So that's essentially what we're trying to do. If you put your finger in under laminar, post finger, it becomes turbulent. But if you put your finger under that diffused tap, it's a different interaction completely. So I think that's the easiest way to describe that.
0: Sure. I guess for anyone listening to this, uh, if you happen to travel through airports fairly frequently, like this this is how my nerdy brain works, but uh, at any at at variety of those free filtered water dispensers that you get at the airports, the thing that I always think about when I stick my water bottle underneath that thing is like, oh, this is like perfectly laminar water flow. <laughs> like, so the idea here that that air is inherently turbulent out in the real world, I don't think that's going to come as a shock to anyone. I don't think anyone's going to be like, oh, yeah, like, like We live in a perfectly laminar flow world, like everything's nice and even. However, um, as much as it, that sort of thing isn't going to be a shock to everyday people, I would imagine that that's not a shock to to various aerodynamicists and wheel engineers and stuff out there either. So why, with all the wind tunnel stuff and CFD, computer simulations, all the stuff that we have at our disposal, why hasn't this been a thing until now?
1: <laughs> the easiest, easiest, shortest answer is cost and time. Um, up until this point, and I think, Nick, you can agree, there was a lot of low-hanging fruit um, in improvements to wheels and improvements to frames to get faster bikes, um, and to your exact point, James, that that Gen One of Reserve didn't didn't move the needle, and it wasn't meant to. It was like we have to walk before we can run, um, and that was and that was like, hey, this is this is stuff that we already we already knew from a, from a Cervelo side that would work on a frame. Here's how we can build it into Nick's wheels, um, and now we're like, okay, where's that next step? Where's that? And as Nick clearly pointed out, we're still we're still learning this as well. Um, I, I don't I don't work for Formula One teams, and I'm not an aerodynamicist, but um, there's a there's a level of understanding that we need to go. So what we're doing is truly just following the data and testing it, and seeing where it goes.
0: Okay, cool. Um, from what you've learned at this point, I guess the obvious question is: How does turbulent airflow? change how a wheel behaves and how you might how you might want to shape that wheel so that it performs better
2: you take a step back and even before talking about wheels um, let's talk about just profiles Uh, that's something we've tested also in the wind tunnel and laminar versus turbulent flow and how how turbulent so uh, turbulence intensity is usually measured as a percentage of variation of speed in three directions so side to side uh forward and aft and then top bottom. Um on and it's an average of that on the mean, on, on the mean speed um in a percentage. And so whether you're testing at 3%, 5%, 10%, 15% turbulence intensities, you'll get different results. And what we did is we 3D printed a, a whole lot of different profiles um, to put in these different flow conditions and see if the trend would be the same. So you go from um uh like a NACA profile to something that is truncated to something that is more like a a, a blunt object, like almost like perfectly round shape. Um, and you test them in increasing turbulent flow and you, you, you try to understand if these profiles get better and better and better or uh, there's actually a point of diminishing return and does that point of diminishing return, um, is that at a different point for, for one profile and the other? And then you can start understanding um, if a profile that would perform very well under laminar conditions, will perform just as well in increasingly turbulent flow um, as vice versa. So uh, that's where we started. We we took all the original rim profiles from the original reserve product lines, the reserve 35, 50, 65 rims, um, tested those in laminar and turbulent conditions. And what we actually saw is that in a general manner, Deeper profiles will usually stall later in turbulent flow. So you can, if you will, you can get away with more in turbulent flow in a in a sense. Um, flow reattaches after separation a little bit easier when it's put into a highly turbulent flow. There, are, it's not exactly that, but it's it's a bit more like if the flow was um, higher energy, and so it it helps it kind of reattach to the shape um, because there's just more movement inside of it. Um, So the short answer would be now to your question, um, different profiles will perform differently in laminar flow or turbulent flow. And therefore you'd make different design decisions based on how turbulent of a flow you want to design for. Um. And so that brings us to like another big question, which is, how turbulent do you want to design for? Uh, and that's what we set out to uh, basically determine by creating a test rig that would measure real-world conditions. We would average out a whole lot of um, data and then come up with uh, product-specific use cases that we can design for. And that's where we're at today. It sounds like a lot of math.
0: Like how do you how do you make heads or tails from all this all this turbulent data? Because you're you're talking about a mix of CFD and uh, and you're you are actually testing in a in a particular wind tunnel that can provide some turbulent flow, right? Um, so it's it's obviously a lot of testing and a lot of data. And how do you I mean, how do you parse through all that to actually get some meaningful information in terms of how you shape something?
2: We uh, so a couple of things. Um, first thing, we partnered up with um, uh, basically a wind engineering company uh, who owns that wind tunnel facility with the capability to u- introduce turbulence in, in the flow. Um, that company is basically specializes in architecture models and models of entire neighborhoods or buildings where they need to introduce turbulence in the flow to understand the loads on a structure. So that company has a ton of expertise.'re um, they're, they're in uh, Canada pretty close to Toronto, so it was a really convenient location uh, for when Cervello is still located in Toronto. Um, so we, we started working with them. We've been working with them for years and years and Cervello has been working with uh, this company RWDI, for, for a longer period than reserve. Um, so we uh, lean heavily on their expertise on understanding what that turbulent flow means and interpreting the data that we measured in the field and turning this into some useful information for product design. So that's the first part of the answer. Second part of the answer is, uh, you bring it back to fundamentals. So you you do measure a whole lot of data and it could mean a million things. But so what you try to do is you average out um, a lot of data for a specific use case You get uh, turbulence intensities, um, directions, and basically a yaw distribution uh, for a certain circuit, for instance. Um, You feed that into a post-processing software that we wrote uh, in in partnership with the wind engineering company to basically spit out numbers that are used by the wind tunnel people to recreate the correct amount of turbulence. So it is a lot of math in the background, uh, but on a day-to-day basis, it's um,
0: actually fairly straightforward. Okay, this is this is why I'm not an engineer. <laughs>
2: it's
1: just repetition. It's it's not. So we when we were when we were looking at the wheels that are going to go on the new S five, I think we un- we we put together hundreds of of different iterations of profiles to go and test. And it was, it, it was months of myself and, and Anton, who works with us at Savello um, and Clinton and Nick, going back and forward, back and forward, and back and forward of just being like, this works, this is what this is providing in CFD, this is what this is showing in CFD. Let's tweak this a little bit. Um,
2: and correlating that to wind tunnel data, right? That
1: Yeah, exactly. It's not as intensive as it seems. It's just uh, just lots of iterative steps and to a different starting point, if that makes sense
0: it does uh well yeah i mean it does make sense it's still well it still obviously sounds very complicated which is why i don't do this um but one one thing i'm wondering i again i think most people would have uh a, a pretty inherent understanding that like like we said earlier i mean the, the the real world is not nice and clean uh and and nice and linear um so when you have this this turbulent or when you introduce this turbulent factor into things um it, it, is there any sense as to whether this sort of design process is more beneficial at like, you know, higher or lower speeds, for example, like is, is there like, what, what's the, what's the real world impact in terms of now introducing this turbulent airflow to the wheel design?
1: The best way to describe it in, in an easy sense is what we're seeing is that, um, especially, and this is specific to front wheels only, um, is that we can get away with a deeper section profile that'll that'll handle in crosswinds and feel like a a shallower section um, in the elevator pitch. What that what that means is that um, when we look at that yaw distribution, um, so we're able to measure rotational force in the tunnel. So we can look at when we're at specific yaws, we can look at inherently with the balance, it measures in X, Y, and Z direction. So you can extrapolate that data for the front wheel and say, Hey, at 15 degrees, um, these numbers are made up. It's not specific to this wheel, but at 15 degree, your angle on the drive side, um, we're seeing a massive, either a massive spike or a massive drop off in that Z direction or in that X direction. So what that tells us is that, um, that it's separating. So, and what that, feels like in real world is when you're riding through a city or you're riding through some trees and you come out into an open field, you you subconsciously correct, right? If something's nice and slow, if there's a force or if there's a side wind, you subconsciously correct to adjust for that. But if there's a sudden drop off, i.e. an increase in wind or a stalling of that front wheel, then that's where you get a shutter. Um, And what this is allowing Mm -hmm. us to do, um, which we wouldn't not we wouldn't see in laminar, but we'd see it at a different stall point. Um, is controlling how abrupt that stall is. So if you graph it, you don't want that drop. You want it to be a shallow, a shallower
2: curve. Um, so to go full nerd math here, you want sort of the derivative f- of that function to be as flat yeah. as possible. <laughs> Basically, a nice gentle, a nice gentle slope.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And, that, and that's what we've, as we mentioned at the beginning of this, so we're kind of following the data to see where it takes us. That's what we've noticed for front wheels. It's completely, I mean, it's it's not something that you need for the rear wheel. Well, it, the other benefit of that is you could, I mean, and Nick will probably go into this a little bit, but instead of it being able to stall at a different point, maybe there's something that you can do with the shape to make it asymmetric. And um, exactly. but I'll let Nick talk about that.
2: Yeah, that's the interesting thing with rear wheels. Uh, Since you're not concerned about steering moment and steering stability, um, and the rear wheel is partially shielded by the frame and rider um, in a very, very turbulent world um, at the back of the bike, uh, the conditions that wheel needs to perform in um, are completely different. And what that allows you to do is to... uh, tweak the profile shape to make it behave like a taller profile, even though it's not as tall. So you, you cut down some weight. Um, and with the newest wheels, the the 5263, um, for example, um, that 63 is actually offset, um, something that we've learned mostly from the mountain bike side. Um, offset wheels are structurally more stable. Uh, you can reduce the amount of material you need because your spoke angles are... are uh, Closer together on drive side and non drive side. So there's a lot of benefit to it. But if you look at that wheel in laminar flow, um, you'll think you leave some watts on the table, basically. Uh, When you look at it in turbulent flow, the drive side and non drive side performance washes out a lot more, uh, which allows you to go asymmetrical, get a lot of structural benefits, get some weight out, uh, just get a better performing wheel overall at basically no cost aerodynamically because that flow is so turbulent at the at the back of the bike. Um, but if you don't test in turbulent flow, you'll not ever notice that behavior. And that will affect your ability to design product the right way.
0: Right. Because essentially what you're saying then, at least for the rear wheel, is because it, it, because everything is so noisy back there anyway, a lot of efforts that people might go through to supposedly optimize that wheel aerodynamically maybe don't really matter as much since the sort of conditions that those wheels are typically tested under aren't what that wheel is actually going to see anyway. Right. Correct.
1: Yeah. On a, on a, on a, on a macro scale, I think on a larger scale, like a difference between a shallow and a disc is still, still relevant, but um, for sure. But for our sake, for, for Nick and I's sake, it's like, you know, those, those iterative steps in that wheel profile design is to get, absolute performance it can be it can be beneficial to look at other things
0: okay um so in talking about this uh, in like different stall points and different testing conditions and stuff like that I and mean, one thing that that suggests is that um a lot of these comparative gra- a lot of these comparative graphs that we see from various manufacturers saying like you know this wheel is faster than this one this one stalls later so on and so forth When you shift in testing from laminar to turbulent flow, do you see a reordering or reshuffling in some of these wheels?
2: Absolutely. Um, I think one of the most interesting things that we noticed is that, um, I have to say this in a politically correct way, but some wheels designed by um, manufacturers on the market, uh, really well-known brands, um, have wheels that... uh, would perform better if they were reversed. So like the rear wheel is like more stable than the front um, when you test it in turbulent flow. And that way, so I think what what we found out is like, there's not only a complete reordering um, when you benchmark competitor product, um, but some wheels are actually designed for the quote unquote wrong conditions. Um, And understanding what those conditions need to be uh, to perform well in the real world um,
0: teaches you a lot. I, I mean, all you have to do is just ride backwards, right? I and mean, it should be fine. <laughs> exactly.
1: well, the, the like if you go back to with the team and all that, it, it's kind of that feedback that we used to get from riders a decade ago of like, you know, this wheel feels unstable, this wheel feels jittery. That's essentially what we're trying to quantify in a tunnel now with turbulence. Um, it's 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 taking... Uh, not, not, not that we want to remove that feedback loop because it is invaluable with just experience, but it's like, we're trying to, we make consumer products, right? So we need to make them at a, we're trying to keep them at a reasonable price. It's, it's obviously a bit difficult now. Um, but, uh, to, to shorten, trying to shorten that development loop and that development cycle down by having these steps at the beginning of the process should help.
2: So I have, a um, Yumbo Visma, um, story uh, to share that might be good like to follow up with what scotty was just saying about that that uh, um that feedback loop um some people would have noticed probably that uh, team jumbo visma is using reserve wheels in uh tts since last year uh blacked out rims last year that we started trying out but um starting at the Dauphiné a few weeks ago um The whole team has basically been on a reserve disc wheel and a reserve 77 front wheel specifically designed for the team. Um, And an interesting story about that feedback loop that last year when we uh, were testing with the team at a training camp, um, we had designed also for triathletes an 88 millimeter profile rear wheel um, back in laminar conditions uh, because we designed that thing two years ago. And what we found out, um, interestingly, uh, the mechanics at the team built a couple of those 88 rims as fronts to try to see if in very still wind, uh, where you're basically your yaw angle is close to zero, would that wheel perform better? Would it be more stable? Because there were concerns about the stability of our 77 design, which was also designed in laminar flow back then, because that had been a couple of years ago. And what we realized, we learned that the profile that was designed for the rear of the bike actually got rid of some of the instability that some riders were feeling in really high speed descents, even though the profile was taller. So although that profile was good for basically very calm winds at high speed, uh, we took some design elements from that wheel and made another 77 iteration, tested that time in turbulent flow, and we got basically rid of that instability that the riders were feeling on a slightly uh, shorter profile that would also have basically the same drag as the original 88 at lower yaw. Um, So there it is. It's a perfect example of what uh, testing in turbulent conditions can give you and how you can kind of bridge that gap with pro rider feedback and increase stability um, for these riders
0: at the highest level. So is it safe to assume at this point then that uh, and we we've been talking quite a lot about wheel stability but it sounds like certainly the main goal of any deeper section aerodynamic wheel and, and certainly why people buy these things is you know they want to go faster so um so does it, is it safe to assume then that the introduction of turbulent testing and design um that this seemingly produces wheels that are more stable in varying conditions but also presumably have lower drag i mean are are those two very much interrelated here Uh, they
2: are um certainly i think also one one thing to remember is that um to to be fast you have to feel stable and confident to go fast especially when conditions are a bit gusty if you're um Right, racing a crit in an you know, urban area or you're uh, going for the break and trying or trying to bridge a gap like you are racing really hard. You're in your red line and you need to have the confidence to just put the power down and have confidence that your equipment can take the conditions. Um, so, yes, it means lower drag in certain conditions, but it also means a wheel that will perform better across the full spectrum and therefore make you faster. Uh, even though maybe at some yaws the 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 absolute drag numbers might be pretty similar Um, overall having product that is more stable will make you faster. Yes. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Um,
1: If you, if you're both familiar and I guess our listeners are familiar with, with we're talking about drag charts from, from wheel brands or bike brands, we've put ones out with S5. If you, if you look at the graph and it's a, along one axis, you've got, you know, 10, 15, whatever it be to negative 15. And then you've got your weighted either in Watts or grams or whatever the measure is of the brand. Um, you'll find sometimes to what Nick is saying that a lot of, um, the absolute, if it's not a weighted average or it's a skewed average, a lot of that gain might not be at, at your angles that you see a lot. So you might have a wheel that, at 15 is it drops below zero or it, it creates a sale effect in that. But what some, I'm, I'm speculating, we don't test every single brand of wheel, but some of them, the stall point is just, it's like 16 degrees, right? But you don't see where that stall point is. And at that stall point, it's an abrupt stall, right? Um, and what we've trying to do is is, as we mentioned before, is move that to a more manageable area of the curve so that one, when it does stall, it's not abrupt, doesn't shoot up to, doesn't all of a sudden create a ton of negative drag or positive drag. Um, But it's able to be slower, not slower to go faster, but slower to go faster, if you know what I mean. So we're, we're not, we're not looking at, oh, it's, it's staying attached at 22 degrees, but right at 23 degrees or 18 degrees or whatever that be, it's, it's, it's completely off the chart.
2: One thing I would add there is uh, the data acquisition test rig that we built and, and rode around the country for, for a couple of years now uh, measures turbulence intensity, but it also measures uh, basically the yaw angle at real riding speed. And so we have hundreds of hours of data riding at a normal riding speed, uh, anywhere between 30 to 55 kilometers an hour um, in descent, for instance, um, hundreds of hours of data to basically inform what that yaw distribution would be for the real rider. And therefore, we can weigh our drag averages in the wind tunnel based on that yaw distribution curve um, to make sure that in 95% of the c- conditions that people will ride most of the time, we get the lowest drag numbers. And then for those other 5% where things get really choppy, we make sure that it's stable. So maybe not the lowest negative, well, either negative drag or like the lowest absolute drag possible towards the end of that spectrum, but at least something that will be stable so you don't get surprised by a a large crosswind coming out of a a curve or something.
1: Nick, I think it might be interesting for for us to kind of go into detail of what that what that rig was and how we how you guys went about designing and developing it because I, I feel like James is like itching to ask that and it's. Well, it's I was
0: waiting for him to I, ask. I was going to say, I mean, because th- 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 this is not the first time we've talked about this. I mean, I should I should like let the cat out of the bag a little bit. Like you, know, the three of us have talked a little bit before about all this stuff, uh, and so it it sounds like this this scooter has an awful lot of distance on it. It's got some time on it.
2: Correct. Yeah, it's got uh, probably like six and a half thousand miles on it now. <laughs> um, so that test rig, uh, you know, the Piaggio three wheel scooters that usually have camera crews on them at the tour or and you see them on TV a lot. So we bought one of these things uh, for for a very good reason it's stable and even if you need to stop real fast because one of your sensors um is you know blinking and doing all sorts of things you can stop on the side of the road and you won't drop this the the moto uh, over so we bought one of these and built um, a rig at the front that uh, to hold basically um high frequency uh pitot tubes if you will so similar wind speed probes as you'd see on an airplane. But ours, instead of having one hole in them, they have five holes each. So uh, one hole is at the front, and then the other four are around it, uh, oriented at 45 degrees. So you have one that's like facing up, one facing down, one facing right, one facing left. And we measure at um, about 16,000 points a second. Um, So it's a a whole lot of data. What that measures is the fluctuation of wind speed and your X, Y, and Z axis. And you can turn this into a turbulence intensity measurement, as we discussed before. So we have one of those probes at rider height, one of those probes at wheel height. So we can provide data for people that design bikes and people that design wheels, which is pretty convenient when we work with Cervelo. Um, In addition to this, we have a couple of other sensors on the scooter that are mounted at the back. So uh, the basic ones like temperature, uh, humidity, uh, barometric pressure, uh, just overall wind speed and wind direction and so that all plugs in into that acquisition system that is mounted on a top case behind the rider of the scooter and we have a big sprinter van following the scooter behind um, trying to control traffic because yes we did get flipped over a bunch of times and stopped over by the police because they didn't know what the hell that thing was going on if you look at it it looks straight out of Mad Max really um so it's it's a bit of a strange uh, little setup yeah. Lots of fun.
0: (laughs) I mean, all you would have had to do is just get like sponsored by Red Bull or something, just sticker up the whole thing. And then no one would have had any questions. Like, oh, they're doing some promotional thing. It would have been fine. Um, That's a good call. Maybe I'll steal that one from you. (laughs) Um, All right. So so I guess getting into more specifics about these wheels themselves. So uh, we've kind of referred to them several times. It's these new Reserve 52-63 wheels. It's a 52-mil deep front, 63-mil deep rear. Um, What are some specifics about this wheel that came about because of this design process that maybe wouldn't have come around in a traditional way. All right. I think
2: the main obvious thing is the asymmetrical uh, rear wheel. So um, that wheel has two millimeters of offset in the rear. So that means the drilling plane is offset two millimeters from the center plane of the wheel, which allows your basically your spoke angles to be a lot more equal Um, on a wheel that deep, uh, I don't have the exact numbers and in front of me, but it'd be something like four degrees on one side and like eight and a half degrees on the other. And then when you offset at two millimeters, you get like five and a half and seven instead. And that directly translates into spoke tension. So your spoke tensions are basically, uh, you cut that difference in half, um, What that yields is a wheel that will last a lot longer over time, won't get out of true, won't need as much attention, but it also equalizes your structure uh, a little bit, which allows us to take some weight out. Um, On the front, uh, it's more about that stability that we talked before. So you understand which profiles will perform better uh, in real world turbulent conditions uh, when, when you do test in those turbulent conditions in the wind tunnel as well, so you design a, a wheel that, you know, will behave like you expect it to behave when you take it out on the road.
0: When you're talking about the stability of that front wheel, um, is there anything that's, you know, that someone might notice looking at like a cross-sectional drawing or something like that, that, that is different on this wheel than some other stuff that's out there. I mean, cause it, it, it does seem like aero wheel design is a game of subtlety. Like the, the, the lay person looking at all these, like, oh, they, they all look like, you know, teardrops or use or whatever. They're all the same. Um, but I mean, essentially, really small differences can have a a tangible, uh, tangible benefit on the road, right? So like what, what, what sort of things are integrated into this rim profile?
2: You're absolutely correct. Uh, it's a, it's a game of subtlety, um, The key aspect of uh, rim design at the front is the interaction of tire and rim and how you make sure that the flow can stay attached as well as possible across a wide um, yaw distribution. Uh, So there are, if you feel the side of that 52 with your fingers, you'll notice that there's a bit of a, not not a bump, but almost uh, right below the transition to the tire and then like a a very subtle swooping back um, and then a rounder edge towards the back. So we're very far off from, you know, V-shaped rims from years ago. Um, When you look from the top, that rim is very wide. So the 52 is um, 25 millimeter internal. So it fits uh, tires from 28 millimeters and up. Uh, But even when a 28 millimeter tire, you'll look at that rim and, from the top view and the rim is actually wider than the tire a little bit, but then it goes back down and, and a little bit narrower, uh, as you go up the profile. Um, but there's subtle differences for sure. Um, but in the realm of wheels, uh, tiny,
0: tiny changes make a great deal of difference to, to be clear to everyone listening. I mean, this isn't a sponsored podcast. This isn't meant to be like, Oh, these reserve wheels are the best, that sort of thing. Um, But uh, I would say any time a particular brand introduces some sort of design methodology or some sort of technology that that someone else hasn't necessarily used a whole lot, then that that has the potential to kind of shake things up a little bit. Um, But I think to me, it more importantly has the potential to just make everyone else's products better as well. Um, And I think. Uh, talking about drag like yeah i mean people kind of some people get kind of excited like oh this might be a little bit faster than someone or whatever but the idea that a, an aero wheel could potentially be a lot more stable i think is a lot more exciting to a lot more people just because it has much more of a visceral impact right like you can i think we've all ridden in in windy conditions and know what it feels like to have a wheel that's just getting blown around all over the place um, and since most people have just one set of wheels uh, and like maybe one set of like race wheels, as we often referred to them back in the day, uh, it certainly would be good to know or have some confidence that you could use that wheel in more conditions. Um, do you have any sense as to whether these wheels are, sorry, do you have any sense as to whether or not this methodology might be more widely adopted by other brands? Because I'm mean, having ridden these wheels now myself for the last few weeks, It, it this sort of thing is always hard to, to really you know, quantify out on the roads, because again, I'm certainly not in a controlled condition, um, but they do certainly feel pretty stable for wheels of this depth, particularly like that 63 rear 52 front. Like I don't, I don't typically ride wheels that deep on an everyday basis. Um, but do you have a sense as to whether or not any companies might pick this up and, and start doing this themselves? Like how difficult would it be for a brand like zip or envy or Bontrager or someone else to, to start doing this?
2: I have to be honest, I do hope um, that's where the industry is going. I, I think, as uh, like you mentioned, we all love bikes. We want to ride good, stable product. Um, I do hope this is a step forward that just elevates the whole industry, to be honest. Um, however, I think the data that we gathered in the past couple of years will be um, – is instrumental in understanding turbulence in the wind tunnel and partnering up with the wind tunnel facilities that have the ability to use that data is pretty unique. There are only that we know of like three wind tunnels in the world, basically that have that capability. Um, and the one that has the most experience with it is the the partner we chose. Um, but ideally uh, at some point in the future, um, I, I do hope other companies in the industry will embrace the methodology and as uh, we work more closely with cervello also and that trickles down into bike designs um we hope to influence just product design as uh, in general and in, in the cycling industry to something that is easier to ride more stable just like a better product overall
0: speaking of bikes uh so it turns out, I mean, cervello and and Reserve and Santa Cruz is kind of all one big happy family, um, and you know we've we've mentioned a couple times bikes, and I think Scott, you had kind of said something about a new S five. Nick, you had mentioned uh, in this data acquisition uh, Piaggio scooter rig that you had set up that you have specifically designed it to collect data at sort of like wheel height and bike height and that sort of thing. Um, this obviously has something to do with bikes as well. And it turns out we have a new Cervelo S5, right? It's been spotted in the wild. It's a pretty, pretty crazy looking thing. Uh, I mean, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds on this bike, um, but what are we looking at there?
1: Um,
0: <clears throat> yeah, good observation.
1: Um, so the the new S5 was was kind of too far down the line to really have any influence in the initial design of that bike. Um, and that it was tested um, much like uh, the way Nick described the, the 70 and 80 depth wheel for the team, um, we, did, we did test that bike, um, and it's been behind the scooter and in front of the scooter, sorry. Um, so we've got both sets of data, and this is all this at this point is. It's like we're still collecting data. Um, so we've got laminar conditions, turbulent conditions, so we've got both sets of those. Um, there are bikes that are being penned currently that, Uh, will have design influences, um, from what we've learned so far from, from real world turbulent conditions. Um, I think if you can, if the, if the the viewers can put two and two together, we already have, you know, asymmetrical bottom brackets with BB right. And we're talking about asymmetrical rear wheels. So I'll leave that, I'll leave that to out in the world to speculate on where that's going. Um. But there are definitely things that we can we can look towards in bike design, and I don't think they're radical departures. We're not looking at things like uh, we're not talking about you know a P five X level of of um, even if it is a UCI legal version of that. Um, but things that again we're inherently a conservative company with 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 our designs, um, or at least how we get to the designs. It's not broad sweeping strokes of like, let's do this. It's like, we need to, we need to test and iterate. And then we get comfortable with that. And then we move on that. Um, but so yeah, specifically on the new S5, uh, not, nothing from what we'd learned in turbulence was influenced through the design or into the design of that bike, but it has been tested in turbulence. Um, and that was just, just purely a timing site. So, like, the bike was basically by the time we had like decided to move down that path of, of, of designing and testing in turbulence, the bike was already basically half cooked. Um, I would have loved to be able to do that, but then at the end of the day, we sell a consumer product when we're beholden to, to launch deadlines.
2: This is very much so a work in progress. I think the, that whole adventure of going into turbulent arrow for wheels and bikes, we still have a, a whole lot to learn. Um, some of you might spot our scooter in the wild at some point because we will continue measuring in various locations. Uh, um, we'll probably look like storm chasers a bit because like that's what I'm, I'm missing so far in, in my data set is like really stormy, super high wind conditions in ver- in a couple of locations. I got some of that, but in open, open fields and desert conditions. But uh, we do need to do more. And as we learn more on different use cases, that will trickle in our designs, both on the Cervello and the reserve side um we're not presenting this as a kind of fully formed concept and idea and as a f- uh, like a f- finality it's more like um work in progress and something we will be working on in the future
1: yeah you're getting in on the ground floor james
0: <laughs> well if uh <laughs> nick if that rig ever makes its way up to boulder colorado i've got a descent here for you that that you can test on especially when it's swirly it's it, it can get kind of hairy <laughs>
2: That'd be fantastic. We can do a couple of baseline runs and then follow you down on your bike with the scooter to see what the, you know, flow behind the bike is. That's something we did with uh, Scotty and uh, the engineering team at Cervelo a few weeks ago, uh, pretty close to Cervelo HQ to following riders and measuring before and after, um, understanding the impact of riders, multiple riders, uh, bike formations, you know, if you go in line or two by two or things of that nature, to understand what that means for turbulent conditions as we start to understand also bikes that will be designed to, um, uh, you know, perform as, as best as possible in small groups or big groups or on your own or things like that. Um, learning a lot. It's been a very interesting project so far, and um, hopefully we learn some new things.
1: Absolutely. Um, I, would, I would say just to reiterate what we talked about at the beginning – there's, there was nothing necessarily wrong in studying and designing and testing in laminar. It's what we're trying to get to with this: is that's not stability per se? Obviously, because turbulence is non-discrete, so it can't be. But is to get to a level of we can repeat this, we can test it, we can we can make those incremental changes on a frame in the laminar, in the entry laminar condition, um, and have it influence and be repeatable. But we're only truly at step one. Um, and to further what you were saying, I I kind of hope the industry does pick it up and run with it because it better's the it better's the whole the whole industry. Sorry, Nick, go
2: ahead. I'm I totally agree with you. I just want to uh, just a reminder that um, not only nothing was wrong with testing in, in laminar flow, but just that whole depth of knowledge and understanding of of basic aerodynamics and laminar flow is what you can build on to better understand real world conditions and in, in in turbulent conditions. Um, everything that we do now is a, an evolution. They're just like basically stepping stones, starting from laminar flow, getting into more turbulent stuff. Like, like Scotty said, you have to walk before you run. And, and we're trying to pick up the pace here, um, and eventually, uh, come up with designs that are even better designed for real world riding. Um, but everybody testing in, in laminar flow right now is not doing anything wrong, um, we just think that it, it's a bit limited in the uh, understanding that you can have of real world conditions. Um, it And in some instances, it can point you towards a design that's actually not the pinnacle of what you could do for a certain use case, um, because you're not actually testing it in, in a realistic world. Gotcha. Well, I
0: appreciate that, uh, that you all haven't well, I guess granted, I haven't necessarily seen the official marketing materials for these yet. But as of right now, I guess I was going to say that I, I appreciate that 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 you all haven't bundled this this kind of new uh, technology and this new methodology into a whole bunch of kind of like over the top marketing hyperbole. Um, these wheels do seem really good, um, but I think certainly it, it sounds like we're all in agreement that what we're all really excited about is sort of where. This sort of new school of thought might lead other products across the board to to become. Because um, certainly, I think no one's going to complain if stuff just gets better across the board.
1: Yes, I mean, what engineering is the physical application of science, right? And if we're science, we need we need peer reviews. So by all means, peer review our work. I'm I'm more than happy for that because it pushes us to continue to try and be at the bleeding edge of this stuff. So
0: cool. Well, I mean, certainly no complaints from me. Um, Scott, Nick, thank you so much for your time. I think this has been quite a fair bit to digest today. Um, but as you said, it seems like early days for the the turbulent airflow uh, and how how this is how it can be applied to, to bicycle products. And certainly in the years to come, it'll be pretty exciting to see where this goes. And maybe we'll revisit this in the future and see where see where this all led. With pleasure. Thanks a lot for having us. Alright, well that was quite the earful. I'm certainly not in a position to say that turbulent airflow is the be-all end-all when it comes to aerodynamic design, but I will say that it sure sounds awfully intriguing and it'll be really interesting to see where this all goes moving forward, and if other industry players really do adopt the methodology like Reserve thinks they will. If you want to read more about these wheels, along with my ride impressions of them, head over to cyclingtips.com for the full written article and review. And if you haven't already done so, please give us a rating and review on iTunes, or at the very least, tell your buddies about Nerd Alert so more nerds can join in the fun. Anyway, thanks as always for listening, and we'll be back next week with a regular group episode and the rest of the crew. See you later.